You'll notice in today's handout, the final element of the service as it has been planned is what we designate as the biblical blessing. I don't know how much those words mean to you or what you do at that moment of the service in terms of engagement, but there's a really rich pattern in the Word of God, both Old and New Testament, where God commands spiritual leaders of the people of God to speak over them words of His blessing, not made-up stuff, not hocus-pocus. It's directive, inspired by the Holy Spirit to say to the people of God as words of promise, words of blessing. I think of those words in Numbers chapter 6 when God tells Moses to speak over a million and a half or more. Scholars estimate Israelites, after God had ripped the Red Sea in half like a piece of paper, let them pass through. He'd given them his law etched by his own finger on the top of Sinai into stone tablets. He had provided for them morning by morning manna from heaven so that they would not perish in the wilderness. Their clothes didn't wear out. He gave to them the tabernacle. He led them day after day after day with a pillar of cloud and night after night after night with a pillar of fire. His own presence consumed their presence. And God says to Moses, Numbers chapter 6, say to my people, Speak to my people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Well, that theme, the blessing from God spoken by spiritual leaders over his people is replete in Scripture and the benediction at the end of the book of Hebrews, the blessing that is spoken over the people of God in Hebrews 13 is our sermon text today. And for those who've been around here for a little while, this is the same blessing that week after week after week since September of 2009 has been the words of that biblical blessing. Every sermon in Hebrews, with a few rare exceptions, we have concluded the service by saying Today's sermon text, Hebrews 13, verse 20 and 21, we're finally uh, at the place where we'll unpack it in sermon form, but we've said it week after week, we've pronounced it over us Sunday after Sunday, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, and it, from the living God, says, now the God of peace, who brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. Even Jesus our Lord equip you in every good thing to do His will working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing as we consider that blessing. Father, we do pray as we have sung together, that you would show us Christ and that you would work down deep in our souls to receive every good thing that you have for us in this word. We come to you in faith as a needy people ready to drink down deep from your endless supply. Give us yourself, O God. 
we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after today, we'll only have two more sermons in the book of Hebrews. I mentioned a moment ago, we've been in this book since 2009. I'll preach one more sermon, Lord willing, next Sunday from today's text. We'll give two weeks to those two verses. And then one final sermon, two weeks from now, from the remaining verses in chapter 13. That's different than your church card, which outlines what we anticipate the sermons will be. In fact, it says on the church card that next Sunday will be our our brother Russ Gregg from Minneapolis, Minnesota, the founder and uh, principal leader of Hope Academy, an inner city, God-centered school for elementary, junior high, and high school students. We had invited Russ to come, and for various reasons, he's not able to be with us next week. We wanted him to preach on doxology and diplomas, worship and academics. And it has been the prayer of Grace Church for many years now that God would allow us to establish, uh, be part of establishing an inner city school where we could inject a God-centered biblical worldview through every subject and we wanted Russ to come help us so you just pray that he'll be able to come at the right time and give us a vision of what that might mean he wasn't able to come so our final sermon in Hebrews has been bumped up and it'll be three weeks from now and this might sound a little strange to you but uh, the next two after today uh, I'll give it my best shot but I promise you the last one will be good because the Holy Spirit's going to preach it The first sermon in the book of Hebrews, September 2009, was just quoting the whole book. Whatever the Holy Spirit said, that's what we said. The last sermon in the book of Hebrews will be the same. Instead of the whole book, we're taking select passages throughout the book that carry the theme, and we'll quote some and pray accordingly and sing in response to those themes and quote some and pray and sing and quote and pray and sing. That's three weeks from today. I know you'll look forward to that. But the sermon text today, because we'll deal with it For two Lord's Days, Uh, today's theme is God's work in God's will for God's glory. I hope that you can see those themes right there in verses 20 and 21. God's work, verse 21 says, may he equip you in every good thing to do his will. We are to do, to act, to work according to God's will, but God's work in God's will, to do His will for His glory. Verse 21 ends, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And there's two ways that for today's purposes we want to slice this text and then, Lord willing, next Sunday we'll consider that final phrase of verse 21, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Today's points begin with verse 21. And it's not our work. It's the work of our great God on our behalf. The first point is this. It's kind of wordy, so I encourage you to put on your thinking cap and come with me. Point one, the God for whom we work is the God who accomplished the work we could not perform. The God for whom we work is the God who has worked for us. He accomplished the work that we could not perform. And all of our work for God is predicated, built on, rooted in His work for us. And that is verse 20. Let your eyes fall on that loaded statement. Verse 20 of chapter 13 in Hebrews. Now the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, 
the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. You didn't do any of that. That's God's work for you. But how's this for a wordy sermon point that tries to capture all the goodness that's in verse 20? The God for whom we work is the God who accomplished the work we could not perform. Verse 21 does tell us how to do God's will. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, the author reminds us again, (laughs) he will not let go of our collar. He just simply will not let us go. We're singing, show us Christ. We're praying 2 Corinthians 4. We're reading Exodus 40. God, it's all about your glory. We're singing songs about down deep in us, Lord, do this. And that's the book of Hebrews. He will not let go of your collar. He can't get away from indicatives and imperatives. Indicative what God has done for you in Christ. Imperative what you must now do in response to the gospel. He will not separate those, and we will not apologize. So help us, God, for preaching the gospel week in and week out, saying it is by the accomplishment of God in the cross of Christ that we have any hope at all and any hope that our work would be pleasing to Him. So verse 21 tells us that we have plenty to do, but verse 20 tells us what God has done to make our work pleasing to Him. Before we do anything for God, we must first understand and embrace what God has done for us. I don't know how deeply the work of grace has dropped in your soul. You know, we talk about the penny dropping when we hear something for so long and finally the penny drops and we get it. We say, ah, why didn't you tell me that before? And the person says, I've been telling you that the whole time. We're slow learners. Every one of us at best are growing at a snail's pace and sometimes the penny drops. And I don't know how deeply the penny has dropped for you in terms of your activity for God. A young man just told me this week in our neighborhood how much he's doing for God. And I asked him about the work God has done for him. He had no awareness. No understanding of the cross of Christ. And I want to say to you, the penny has to drop really deeply. So deeply that you have to repent not only of the bad things you have done that we would call sin, and those things are sin, but you have to repent of all your righteous deeds. You have to turn away from the best things you've done. You have to to ask God to forgive you for praying to Him without going to Him through Christ. You have to ask Him for trying to help Him. Contribute to your redemption by the good deeds that you do so that He'll like you more. And all the work we do for God that's not predicated on, built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually contributing to our damnable predicament. That's why we say before we do anything for God, we must first understand and embrace what God has done for us. There are several ways that verse 20 unfolds the beauty of the gospel so let's just take them one at a time first look at the God for whom we are called to work who has done for us what we could not do what's his title what's his name in verse 20 the God of 
peace. I want you to look at him. Through the eye of faith, I want you to look at him. Look at our God and look at him this way. He is the God of peace. That's not what you make him. That's who he is. And in the context of the verse, the peace that we have with God, as I've mentioned, is built upon the gospel. It's gospel peace with God or no peace with God. There is a problem that we all have. It is our sin. We justly deserve damnation. It would be fair for God to flick us off the face of his earth and consign us to the lowest corner of the devil's hell forever. That would be fair. That's what our sin deserves. The wages of sin is death. That's eternal death. Separation from God in a real place called hell. That's a problem. How then can we call him, 2 Corinthians 1.3, Father of mercy, God of all comfort. How can we look at the God we've offended by our sin, whose son we killed, and say, you're the God of peace? How can that happen? The solution is not only what God has done, But even that is built deep, 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 deep in the soul, the heart of God Almighty. That comes out of who He is. He is the God of peace. Before you see what God has done for you, for the rescue of your soul in the cross of Christ and His victorious resurrection from the dead, you've got to understand that His gracious work flows out of who He is. Why did He save us that way? Because that's who He is. Nobody else dreamed up the gospel. Nobody else came up with the plan for our redemption. If you had a trillion eternities to try to think of a way that a rebel against God could be reunited to fellowship with Him in a way that did not diminish His holiness, you and I would never have come up with this plan. But let's just say that one among us might have dreamt up the gospel. That the second person of the Trinity be sacrificed under the wrath of God for the sin you and I committed, not His own, and that He rise again from the dead, forever glorified as our righteousness in the presence of God, who would have had the audacity to go to God and suggest that plan? Nobody except for God came up with the good news of the Gospel. The gospel is God's eternal plan to glorify Himself through the rescue of sinners, removing the enmity between the two parties, between us and God, demonstrating that His nature is peace. That's who He is. And the opening line of this verse is hitting at that question that really wrecked me as a new believer. I mentioned we're all growing at a snail's pace, and uh, it's kind of embarrassing where we're all still today in terms of what God has done for us. But the question that wrecked me as a new believer was when the fellow who was discipling me asked me a question that seemed like a false dichotomy. Like you, can't, you can't choose between the two. And the question he asked me in the next two hours we spent searching Scripture to explore an answer was this. Would you rather have the peace of God or the God of peace? And so, sounding like a trick question, I gave no response. And in a sense, that is a false dichotomy. But in a very biblical sense, it's not. 
The greatest gift of the gospel is not what He gives to you outside of Himself. The greatest gift of the gospel is that He gives us Himself. And Philippians 4 talks about both of these categories, both the peace of God and the God of peace. Be anxious for nothing. But by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known unto God, and the peace of God will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Philippians 4, 9, and the God of peace will be with you. So it is a false dichotomy that separates these two things. You cannot have the peace of God unless you have the God of peace. But the question is, do you only want the gift or do you want the giver? To have the God of peace is to have every blessing that He gives. All of God's gifts to us, even our salvation, is like a beam that comes out of the sun and we're to trace the beam all the way back up to the source and say the one that I want more than I want anything else is the giver of the gift, not the gift itself. The God of peace is the source of the gospel. That's verse 20. But notice what he's done. What a statement. The God who has worked for us is the God of peace, but what has he done B, he has brought from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. Brought from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. That's two statements. What he did in Christ, he brought him from the dead and who this Jesus is. The great shepherd of the sheep. One at a time. Jesus is the one whom God brought from the dead. How did the God of peace, that's who he is, Effect peace between vile sinners like you and I. Jeffrey Wilson said, the resurrection is the proof of our reconciliation. Friends, it all hinges right here. He brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. That's where it all hinges. I want you to listen very carefully. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is not true, then the Bible instructs you to deny the Christian faith. One more time. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, the Bible tells you don't believe this. Do not embrace the Christian faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 to 19, if Christ be not raised from the dead, we are still in our sins. Verse 17. If Christ be not raised from the dead, we are all men most to be pitied. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. But if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, Not only is the Christian faith the only hope for sinners, it is also the greatest news in the universe because it's the pathway for us to have a relationship with the God of peace who has been offended by our sin. You see, the gospel, the God of peace brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. Why did he do that? He already had eternal fellowship with himself and his triune Godhead. But he brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep so that we too could enjoy what God has enjoyed for all eternity. That is the much making of God. He made peace where there was no peace. The text says God brought him from the dead. The most cataclysmic nanosecond in the history of the universe is when the eyelid of Jesus of Nazareth 
bewitched in a dusty borrowed tomb. When life came back into his corpse. When his finger moved and life was coursing again through his body. Romans chapter 1 says it this way. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. What gospel? The gospel that he promised beforehand through the prophets. That's the Old Testament. In the Holy Scriptures. About whom? Concerning his son. Who is he? He's the one who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection is true. And Jesus Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep that God brought again from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 says it this way, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and that He was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also. Friends, Jesus Christ is your John eleven twenty five. 25. He is the resurrection and the life. That's who He is. The entire message, the kerygma, the preaching of the apostles. If you trace through the book of Acts, you'll find sermon after sermon after sermon. Beginning in chapter 2, going all the way to chapter 28, there's sermon after sermon. And you will find that all those sermons can be condensed under one title. Jesus rose from the dead. Friends, 11 apostles, minus Judas, who is a reprobate, and a son of perdition, and perished in hell. Minus Judas, ten of the eleven apostles, minus John the apostle who died at old age, the other ten of them died for preaching the message of the resurrection. Are they all ten under delusion? Are they all ten duped? Have they all ten been put under a trance and hypnosis and psychological manipulation? No way. The God of peace who brought again from the dead. Who? I love that it doesn't say Jesus. That would have been wonderfully perfect. But God tells us who He is. He's the great shepherd of His sheep. When He came out of the tomb, he came out of the tomb with a shepherd's staff. He came out of the tomb with a tender heart for the people of God. He came out of the tomb looking for the one who wandered away from the 99. Look at that phrase in verse 20. Just as the Father is referred to as the God of peace, Jesus is referred to as the great shepherd of the sheep. What a name. What a name. In the preceding passage we dealt with last Sunday, Verses 17 to 19, all Christians are commanded by God to obey our leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over our souls. All Christians are called to be under the watchful care of elders, pastors. But here, the very next breath, we're reminded that our earthly shepherds are under shepherds. And Jesus himself is our great shepherd for all of us. 
Have you walked close to him in the pasture? Green pastures and beside still waters, the Lord is my shepherd. Peter finally understood this. It took him a while. And uh, speaking of growing at a snail's pace, the Lord Jesus said to Peter in John 20, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, shepherd my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now Peter finally got it. We know he finally got it. He may have gotten it instantaneously, but over time, like all of us, work in progress. As an old man, that same Peter, that same man, probably 30, 35, 40 years later, wrote these words. 1 Peter 2.25 For you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. The same letter he instructs us, Peter does, to look forward to a great day when you will see somebody face to face. 1 Peter 5.4 And I quote, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of unfading glory. The risen and reigning Lord Jesus is himself the great shepherd of the sheep. Who is this God? He's the God of peace. What has he done? He's brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. Oh, but friends, it gets even better. Third, under our our first point, C, He has done all this through the blood of the eternal covenant. Do you see those words in verse 20? We've said before here, and may we not tire of saying it again and again, the most difficult question in all the world is not why do bad things happen to good people, right? We solved that one, okay? Just for refresher, there are no good people. Romans 3. So the tough question is not do, why do bad things happen to good people. A tougher question would be why do good things happen to bad people? You know, why are we not all complaining today? It's not fair that there's not a tornado outside ripping our homes apart. That's just not right, God. I don't hear anybody complaining about that. But there's more difficult questions. And it's not the silly stuff like can God make a rock so big that he cannot move it? Those aren't the tough questions. The real difficult questions are questions like this. How? How, once you see something of His holiness, and once you see something of your sinfulness, how can He remain God and befriend somebody as wicked as us? How can it be? Earlier we mentioned that had anyone else thought of the Gospel plan, the death of the Son of God in our stead, who would have had the audacity to suggest the solution to God? 
thankfully, this verse tells us that God is the one who devised the plan. The Bible's crystal clear. Through the blood of the covenant? Nope. Through the blood of the temporal covenant? Nope. Through the blood of the eternal covenant. All three of those words. Blood, eternal, covenant. The Bible's clear the plan of redemption was struck in the time of eternity past between the persons of the Trinity that the Father would plan, the Son would accomplish, the Spirit would apply redemption to sinners. Ephesians verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 could not be more clear about this. Just as He, the Father, chose us in Him, the Son, before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. And if that's not clear enough, Isaiah 53 should cause us to lay our hand over our mouth. It pleased the Father to crush Him if, that's an important word, if He would render Himself as a guilt offering. This tells us something. The Father crushing the Son in a way that brings Him pleasure if the Son would willingly render Himself to God as a guilt offering. Whose guilt? Not His own. The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53 says in another verse. So somewhere in eternity past, the Father said something to the Son like, you know that I want to glorify Myself in creating a people who like the moon which will have no light will reflect the glory of the Son. Those image bearers of Mine showing how great and glorious I am. And I imagine that the Son may have said to the Father, oh, if it'll bring you glory to spill over in creation, though you're the self-sufficient one needing nothing or no one, then by all means glorify yourself. And I can imagine the Father saying back to the Son, but if these that I create in my image do not uphold the covenant of works, if they do not walk in my ways and fear me and love me, then it will bring me even greater glory to give them a state beyond innocence, a position from which they cannot fall. It would honor my name and it would glorify my great heart if there was a way that they could be redeemed from their iniquities and brought into an everlasting covenant with who we are. And the Son said something to the Father, well, if it would glorify you to redeem those same people in such a way, then by all means glorify your name that way. And then the Father saying something to the Son like, then therefore, the only way is that I hand to you the cup of my divine wrath that they deserve. And in your holy incarnate person, you drink down every last drop 
and I crush you in their place. And then the son, with sober awareness of everything that the gospel means, said, Oh, Father, if it'll glorify you to redeem them, that way, did by all means glorify your name. Through the blood of the eternal covenant. Had Jesus not died and shed His precious blood, that's temporal Jesus, in time, according to the eternal covenant that was struck between the persons of the Godhead, we would forever be lost in our sins. We would forever be cast into hell. But Jesus, who wept salty tears and who sweat drops of blood in agony underneath the shadow of the cross, He carried out the eternal covenant. As our verse says, through the blood. You do know he didn't have any blood when that covenant was struck, right? You do know that when the Lord Jesus said, if it will glorify you to redeem them this way, then by all means glorify your name. At that point in eternity, he had no blood. He was not incarnate. When the covenant was struck, the Son guaranteed his obedience. And he planned, according to the Father's will, by the Spirit's doing through the womb of the Virgin Mary, to take on flesh and blood in order that one day, the whole point for which he was born, he would pour out his precious blood for our rescue from the wrath of God. Hebrews has something to say about this. Because the children share in flesh and blood, Hebrews 2.14, Jesus, therefore, likewise, also partook of the same, so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. He had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might make propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews chapter 10 gives us a snapshot into one of the quiet times of Jesus, I believe. Jesus is reading Psalm 40. He's meditating on the words of God in the Word of God. He's rendering his heart in praise and obedience to the Father. And in that chapter, Psalm 40, Hebrews 10 tells us what Jesus said. Jesus is reading the words. Behold, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, I have come to do your will, O God. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body. You have prepared for me. to do your will of God through the blood of the eternal covenant. The God of peace who brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. Jesus our Lord. Wow. Little words make all the difference. 
Our fourth and final consideration under our first point is Jesus our Lord. Friends, these little words make all the difference. There's a thousand faithful ways to preach the Word of God. And our approach to Hebrews has had its clunks and bumps and all kind of oddities. But I do hope that six and a half years of word for word, systematic, verse by verse, whatever comes next, we're going to take it. I hope that in some way we have been discipled as a people and helped to learn how to meditate on every word of the word. Do you see this little preposition? Three letters. Our. Jesus. Our. Lord. Absolutely every one of those three words is crucial, crucial for our redemption. Jesus, our Lord. Jesus is His incarnate name. That's his earthly name. He didn't have that name in eternity past. We've talked about this every time it's come up in the book of Hebrews. You shall call him Jesus, the angel says to Joseph, because he will save his people from their sins. When Mary would call seven-year-old Jesus in for dinner time, Yeshua, Jehovah saves. Jesus. Lord. I'm telling you that it, it sounds crazy. And it would be crazy if it were not true. But there's a man who was born in Bethlehem, little nowhere town in the Middle East, and was raised in another nowhere town called Nazareth. A man who grew up just like you and I grew up. Not one time did he touch an electronic techno gadget. Not one time did he board a cargo seat, a cabin seat in an airplane. He wasn't widely traveled. In fact, most of his ministry happened in another little town called Capernaum. Best guesses we have about culture of that day, we would assume he wore the clothing and spoke the language of the culture. He ate the food. He slept in the houses and oftentimes outside of one. He had facial hair most likely, perhaps long in the back, coming from the top of his head. And I'm telling you, he's the Lord of the universe. Matthew 28 tells us that when he rose from the dead, every molecule of authority in the galaxies was placed in his palm. Psalm 2 says, one day, as many knees are in this, or as are in this room will bow before him, and absolutely every tongue, including the laws peoples of the country of Georgia for whom we prayed, will bow their knee and say, Curios ace Christos. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus, Lord, connected by three little letters. O-U-R. Our. Our Lord. Without the first person plural pronoun, our. We would of all men most be pitied. The great shepherd of our souls, the one that the God of peace brought again from the dead, the risen Redeemer, is our Lord. Verse 20 is about the gospel. It's about the work that God has accomplished on our behalf, which we could not perform. Is He your Lord? Is He your Lord? I'm not asking if you got baptized two, three, five, ten times. I'm not asking if you're a member of a church. I'm not asking if your parents were Christians. I'm not asking you if you read your Bible. I'm not asking you if you do good things. I'm not asking you if you know people who are Christians. I'm not asking you if you sing Christian songs. 
I'm asking you, is Jesus Christ your Lord? That's what verse 20 is about. The work that God has done for us in Christ. If you don't start there, we get nowhere. The next verse is about the work that God calls us to do. The work of the Christian is to do the will of God by the power of God for the glory of God. Or our sermon title, God's work in God's will for God's glory. Verse 21 is telling us not only did God accomplish by the gospel the work that we could not perform, we're also being told that He equips us to perform the work that He calls us to do. Those who say, fatalistically, because God does the work of Ephesians 1, predestining before the foundation of the world, calling according to His purpose, therefore we're to do nothing, have totally missed the point of the gospel. We are not to work for our salvation, but we are to work from our salvation. We must understand and embrace that the imperatives of Scripture, what we are to do, are to be rooted in the indicatives of Scripture, what God has done for us on behalf of Christ. If you don't stand in Christ, none of your work will ever please Him. Indeed, your righteousness is as filthy rags in His sight. We must work from our salvation, not for our salvation. All who are saved will crave what Jesus our Lord craved. You know what it's like to crave a meal? Some of you are already there at this hour. And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. That's what every Christian craves. So there's a few ways that we want to look at this little phrase in verse 21. Our work First is to be according to God's will. Notice that in verse 21, He equips us in every good thing to do His will. Now I'm, just like you, I often wonder and pray about what God's will is for my life. So I did a little search this morning. It's not the first time I've done it. And I just typed in my search engine, exact phrase, not all the, time, all the verses that have all the words, but exact phrase, will of God. 23 verses in the Bible tell us exactly what the will of God is. That does not count verses like ours which say do His will. There's many, many more verses like that. Friends, the will of God is recorded for you in the Word of God. It's fine and good to pray that God would lead us into His will, but it's futile to suppose that He's ever going to lead us into His will if our nose is not in His Word. The book is a reliable record of the will of our God. Do you want God to speak to you? Do you want to know what He wants you to do with your life? 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification. 1 Peter 2, for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. 1 John 2, the one who does the will of God lives forever. On and on we could go. The will of God is contained in the Word of God. Our work is to be according to God's will. But second, our work is to be done by God's power. Do you see this? It actually shows up two times in verse 21. Not only are we called to do God's will according to God's Word, but we're also to do God's will according to God's Word in a way that we're incapable of doing apart from the power of God. You've all heard the story about the Asian pastor who came over to America years ago and said, it's amazing what you Americans can do without the Holy Spirit. 
We cannot perform God's will apart from God's power. Positively, our work is to be done by God's power. Do you see it two times? Verse 21, may he equip you, that's his work, in every good thing to do his will. May he work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. He equips, he works in us so that we can do his will. Our work is to be according to God's power. That's the theology of sanctification. We are not to separate our work from God's work. True work for God is done by the power of God. That's why standing right there every Sunday before the service begins with the people who are leading, we pray just like we did today, 1 Peter 4.11. Same verse every week. Oh God, let us serve by the strength that you supply so that you will get all the glory through Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen. Our work is to be according to God's power. The fellow who discipled me, I mentioned a moment ago, the last book that he read, he didn't make it all the way through before he died, was Walter Marshall, the Puritans, The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. It's heavy sledding. And because he was reading it, and I had such an affection for him, I trudged through that book as a 22-year-old. Very young believer. And it can be summed up in these words. Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Our working is truly according to God's will when it's not distinguished from God working in us. Our working according to God's will is God working in us. You want to know if God's working in your life? How is it with you in the commands of Scripture? If you're working out God's written revelation, His will for you, then it's proof positive that He is at work in you. Paul sums this truth up beautifully in Colossians 1. For to this purpose I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works in me. Who's working? Yes. God and Paul. 1 Corinthians 15.10 Paul says, I labored more than all the apostles, yet it was not me, but the grace of God that was in me. We're to work according to God's will, we're to work by God's power, and finally, we're to work for God's glory. This is the aim of it all. It comes from the end of verse 21. I trust that you can see it there. To whom belongs the glory forever and ever. I'm not going to say much about this because it'll be the entire focus of next Sunday's sermon. That little phrase, to whom. And I'd like you to try to figure out before next Sunday the antecedent. (laughs) To whom. Jesus Christ or God the Father? You meditate on this verse. The whole sermon is going to delve into that little phrase, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. For today's purposes, suffice it to say, oh, for a dart from heaven, Lord, do it. If you do not salivate for the glory of God, you are not a Christian. The Christian has been reborn from the inside out. Our affections have been changed. Now we pulse our sisters in Christ, our brothers in Christ, pulse with the heartbeat of God for the glory of God. 
If you don't want His glory, then there has been no saving work in your soul. In Christ, we are those people of Romans 11 who say with a hearty amen from Him, through Him, to Him, are all things to Him be the glory forever. The true Christian is the one when he puts his fork in his lunch plate this afternoon says, whether I eat or drink, or whatever I do, let it all be done for the glory of God. The Christian is the Colossian 3 person. When you go to your cubicle on Monday, let us work. Not as man pleasers, but for the glory of God. Our great ambition in all of our work is to bring glory to the God who's redeemed us and to honor the shepherd of our souls who watches over us in His risen power and authority. Now that little phrase, to whom be the glory forever and ever, is worth a thousand sermons at least. I say that all the time, but do you agree with me? That's worth a thousand sermons. If we would get our eyes off of ourselves, if we would stop looking at men's applause or be fearful of what other people think about us, which is requiring us to get our eyes off of ourselves, if we would begin to live for the pleasure of our King, by the power of our King, according to the word of our King, if we would happily put our fleece underneath the shepherd of our souls, our risen Redeemer, if we would know that there's tranquility, peace, shalom, real rest of soul under the God of peace, then the spice of our life would be sweetened and seasoned even in valleys of sorrow and suffering. Even mountaintops would be sweetened with the serenity that God is there. Oh, for a longing for the glory of God in our lives and oh, for an aim for the glory of God in our labor. God be glorified in me. God be glorified through me. In my life and through my labor. That's the point. It's really the point of the book of Hebrews. The great redemption of Christ being worked out in our lives for the glory of the God who's loved us so much that He made us His own. Let's pray together. With your head bowed and eyes closed, I'm speaking over you God's own will. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. Even Jesus our Lord equip you in every good thing to do His will working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever.